Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. This morning we're going to have Dr. Michael Lacona come and bring a message for us. Uh, It is a message about the resurrection, and there really, uh, I think, that there's nothing more important than the resurrection, and we need to understand its importance. We need to be able to communicate how essential it is to our faith. And uh, there is uh, uh, Dr. Lacona has been one of the great uh, apologists for the defense of the resurrection, grounding the resurrection in history. And I think one of the fearful things for our day is the separation of truth and reality and history from faith and that we have bought into the the lie that faith is just a feeling or a, an idea and it doesn't have any reality therefore it's optional you can take it or leave it or it's a good suggestion or not a good suggestion but when it comes to the resurrection I see it and we see it as the validation of the truth of the gospel And as we face the truth of the resurrection, we have to face the truth of who God is, who Jesus is, and what that means for our lives. And Dr. Lacona has been one of the best apologists for that. He's written many books, and uh, most of his books are pretty groundbreaking. And so we're delighted, I'm delighted, and I hope you're delighted to have him come and teach us this morning. Thanks, brother. Good morning, and thanks for having me. It's great to be here in Missouri. That's how you say it, right? Missouri. And my wife's from Nebraska. Uh, she's from a little town called Nebraska City. Anybody know about that town? Okay, several of you. Yeah. little clearing in a cornfield. Um, and we met at college, and uh, what a wonderful woman. We've been married for 32 years, and so it's been wonderful being here. Well, I get to go to some interesting places uh, in what I do. I'm on the road quite a bit. Um, a few weeks ago, I was in Singapore. Uh, but one really neat thing was Palm Sunday weekend two years ago. And my wife and I, uh, we were invited to go back to the church that we, at which we remember when we lived in Virginia Beach. And we moved from Virginia Beach to the Atlanta area in 2000, December 2004. We missed that church. So they invited us to come back. They invited me to lecture on the resurrection on Saturday morning. I gave several lectures. And then Sunday morning, I did the, spoke in the worship services on the historical reliability of the Gospels. That evening, the pastor, Michael Simone, and his wife, Gail, invited my wife to dinner at a real nice uh, Italian restaurant. It was uh, some of the best Italian food I've ever had. It was really good. So we sat there and eating all right, I'm doing this, guys. There we go. So um, we're sitting there eating, and at one point, the pastor, Michael, he says, uh, did any of you guys ever see the television series Lost? And I said, yeah, yeah, we watch. Anybody here see Lost? Yeah, okay, a bunch of you. So um, we didn't watch it. My wife and I didn't watch it while it was on television. We waited for all the uh, seasons to be over, and then we just did a binge watch through the whole thing had so much fun said yeah yeah we really liked it and he said well um 
Do you remember the guy that was the character John Locke? He was bald and kind of muscular. And uh, I said, yeah, yeah. He said, well, his name, the actor's name is Terry O'Quinn. And uh, Terry O'Quinn lives here in Virginia Beach. I said, oh, okay. He said, sometimes he comes to this restaurant. I said, well, that's kind of cool. And he said, so then he leans forward and he says, I don't want you to look around, but he's seated in the booth right behind you. Well, I'm not into, you know, stuff, but I did get my picture taken with him, you know. So, um, yeah. So when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, we've got to ask, why is this even important? Why even care about this? Well, Jesus, while on earth, made some really radical claims. He claimed to be the uniquely divine son of God. He claimed that he was going to uh, bring the message of salvation. And when you do these kinds of things, your critics are going to ask for some evidence. And Jesus' critics were no different. And, you know, they asked for a sign. And he said, I'll give you one sign. My resurrection from the dead. Go ahead and kill me. I'll rise from the dead three days later. So, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, he's a false prophet, he's a failed Messiah, and he's not worth worshiping, he's not worth following. I mean, why even come and meet and go through the snow on a Sunday morning to go worship someone who isn't really there? But, if Jesus did rise from the dead, then it seems that he would have done so in confirmation of his personal radical claims And it gives us something to think about because then his teachings would be true and what we do with those teachings could impact our eternity. But it's more than that. Um, you, You think if God does not exist, what does that mean about certain things like all the injustices we see in our world today? Slavery, human trafficking, child labor, rape, murder, people who are falsely accused, convicted, and go away to prison for years, perhaps decades, some even their entire adult lives for a crime they did not commit. Framed by someone who gets to go free and enjoy freedom even though they're the criminal and puts an innocent person in prison and takes their life away so that they can enjoy freedom. If God does not exist, then that person's cries are never heard. There's no one that even cares about that person. If God does not exist, then injustice goes unanswered. And then I think of all the goodness that happens in the world. People who give up their freedom, the comforts of life, um, give up their lives even to help the oppressed. If God does not exist, then goodness goes unanswered. And then I think if God does not exist, what about the finality of death? All of us are going to face it someday. Whether it's and our own, and many of us have already faced it when it comes to our loved ones. I've lost both my parents in the last six years, and I miss them. But I have a confidence that I'm going to see them because Jesus. if Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity is true. And because they were followers of Jesus, I'm going to see them again. But I'll tell you this, about two months ago, my dog died. We had the dog for 16 and a half years. dog became a family member. I uh, love that dog. And I can tell you, um, my wife has seen me weep maybe three times in our 32 years of marriage. But I w- have wept more over the loss of that dog than I did both my parents combined. And it's not that I love the dog more than my parents. It's because I have the confidence I'm going to see my parents again. I don't have such confidence with the dog. But if God does not exist, the finality of death applies to everyone. 
And when someone dies, that is it. Their life is over, and in a very short, relatively short period of time, all memory of that person will have been erased. No one will be left to remember them. And we are forever apart and lost. So that's the narrative. If God does not exist, injustices go unanswered, goodness goes unrewarded, and death is final. But there is another narrative, and that narrative says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and that God loved the world so much that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will never perish, but will have eternal life. And this is eternal life, that we may know the only true and living God and Jesus Christ whom he sent, and that he cares for us. We can cast our cares on him because he truly cares for us. If God exists, then injustices will go answered. Goodness will be rewarded, and death is not final. Now, that's good news. But just because it's good news doesn't mean it's true. Which narrative is true here? How would we know which narrative is true? You can't just say, I want one narrative to be true. I want Christianity to be true because of all the benefits. That doesn't make it true. So we look for evidence, and Jesus gave that evidence with this resurrection. He said he would. So the thing is, do we have any evidence for the resurrection? And yes, we do. But is that evidence sufficient to establish that he actually rose from the dead? I think that it is. And let me just give you some of the evidence for this. Is this thing working? Okay. Did you do that or did I? Okay. I don't know why this. Um, So we're going to start off with one fact. It's lit up. Okay. So um, this is a fact that I'm giving you here. This fact is granted by by virtually every scholar in the relevant field of history, uh, uh, historical kind of field, who studies the subject, including skeptical ones. Atheist, agnostics, Jewish, liberal, whatever. Virtually 100% grant this fact. And here's the fact. Jesus' disciples were going around claiming that he had been raised from the dead and had appeared to them. Now, it's not saying that he actually rose from the dead. Neither is it saying, go back, I'll tell you when to move. Um, oh, you're trying, okay. So, it's not saying that he rose from the dead. It's not even saying that they believe that he rose from the dead. It's just saying that they were claiming it. And this is a virtually undisputed fact right here. And and here's why. Give you some evidence. Next slide. Okay, so... Uh, can you go back one? Okay. So the first evidence is Paul. Now, Paul had been a skeptic. Paul had actually been out there persecuting the church, the Christians, because he believed Jesus was a false prophet, a failed Messiah, and he believed it was God's will. He was a committed, zealous Jew, and he believed it was God's will to destroy the movement that Jesus had started. So he goes out arresting Christians and persecuting them, and then By his own testimony, he has an experience that he is convinced is an appearance of the risen Jesus to him. And it radically transforms his life from being a persecutor of the church to one of its most able defenders. 
And Paul, in his letter to the church at Corinth, which uh, historians, again, even skeptical ones, grant that he actually wrote this letter, and he's writing it within 25 years or less of Jesus' crucifixion, he goes through some tradition. He, he says, okay, Jesus died, he was buried, he was raised, and he appeared to individuals and to groups. And then he says, whether it was I or they, the apostles, this is what we preached and this is what you believed. So Paul is saying, I preach to you and the apostles are preaching right now. And Paul knew the apostles. Um, He says, this is what we are preaching, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus and the appearances to others. So our first line of evidence is that Paul himself claims to be an eyewitness. He claims to know other eyewitnesses, the apostles, and he says that they are all proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. That's one. Second, oral tradition. Oral tradition was very much in play in the first century, and they had ways. It's not like the game of telephone, where I whisper something in your ear and your ear, and by the time it gets to the back, it's completely distorted. Certainly that that happened in antiquity. We know it happened because we have things like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Mary, Gospel of Philip, and so forth. Um, But we also know that oral tradition had a very controlled way to be passed around. And we know that Paul and the Jerusalem apostles were doing it in that way. Paul would make, they would frame it, with, within uh, ways that were easily remembered and transmitted. Um, we can test it. We can see Paul giving oral tradition about Jesus' sayings at the Last Supper. Um, and he's putting that in First Corinthians chapter 11. Again, written somewhere between probably the years 51 and 55. And then we find Luke's gospel. He reports the same tradition about Jesus' sayings at the Last Supper. Luke is writing his gospel sometime between probably the year 60 and 85. And so whether it is five years or 35 years or more, they are word for word. So we can see they had the ability to pass along this tradition in a controlled manner to, pr- to preserve the integrity of these things. And so we've got creeds. Go back, please. I'll, I'll let you know when to go. Um, so you got creed, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 7, where that's where Paul says, I delivered to you what I had also received from the apostles. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised. He appeared to Peter, to the 12, to more than 500, to James, to all the apostles. And they said, last of all, he appeared to me. And then uh, the, the speeches in the book of Acts, um, the speeches aren't transcri- transcriptions of what they said. Because you can read these things in three to five minutes. There's no way they're going to give a sermon for three to five minutes. You wish, right? (laughs) Um, So these are sermon summaries. They are meant to encapsulate a, a summary, an outline of the kind of things that they were preaching on these occasions. So in these, it has the apostolic preaching. It's called kerygma. It's the official formal apostolic preaching that's out there their message and that talks about the death burial resurrection of jesus and the appearances and that the apostles were eyewitnesses so it's preserving this kerygma okay and then you have go on next one written tradition we've got the four gospels matthew mark luke and john we have a letter by Clement of Rome. Clement is, is uh, known to have been a disciple of the Apostle Peter. 
And then you have Polycarp, who is known to have been a disciple of the apostle John, the son of Zebedee. And so what they write in there, they talk about how the the apostles were claiming that Jesus rose from the dead. So we've got these different sources, nine different sources. If you're trying to remember them, just remember the acronym PAL. You've got Paul, oral tradition, written tradition. Um, uh, And... In these, we find, every one of them, we find the apostles claiming, or reports of the apostles claiming, that Jesus rose and had appeared to them. So, it's not just one source. We've got nine independent sources that are saying these things. You get nine independent sources, it's it's virtually indisputable, indisputable that this thing would happen if you've got independent sources like like this. So that's why scholars are virtually unanimous in their acceptance of the fact that Jesus' disciples were claiming that he rose from the dead and had appeared to them. Again, we're not saying they believed it. We're not saying that he actually rose. At this point, we're just saying that virtually 100% of all scholars who study the subject, no matter how skeptical, will say that Jesus' disciples were making this claim. Now, what do we do with this? Well, let's break this up and make it real simple. So, next slide. Um, We're going to put this in a logic tree. So, they were claiming Jesus appeared. He either appeared, as they were claiming, or they did not appear. Can you think of another option? Or none. These are the only two options. So, now let's focus on one of these options. We're going to go with he didn't appear. All right, next slide. So now we're left with two options. They thought he appeared, so he didn't appear, but they really thought he appeared, or they did not think that he appeared. Now let's start with they thought he appeared. Okay, next please. So if they thought he appeared, they were either hallucinating, and one more. They were either hallucinating or Jesus had an identical twin and they they misidentified him. All right. So let's look at hallucinations. Hallucinations, next one. All right, hallucinations are false sensory perceptions. Uh, There's different ways of experiencing a hallucination. You can have a visual hallucination where you think you see something that's not really there, or auditory, you hear something that's not there, or smell or taste something that's not there, or you can have a sense of touch. Remember when you got your first mobile phone? And uh, you had it in your pocket, your purse, and you were sitting either in church or a class or a lecture or something, and you'd put it on vibrate, and you thought you felt or heard it. And you pulled it out, and you looked at it, and you thought you got a text, and you looked at it, and you said, nobody loves me. Well, but it was a false alarm. You actually didn't feel it. You actually didn't hear it go off. You thought you did. You were experiencing a tactile hallucination. Or you ever have a dream, you've been sleeping, you have this dream that you're falling and you wake up, that is called a kinesthetic hallucination. It's a sense of motion. We all experience these kinds of things. They are false sensory perceptions. But when you are having these perceptions, they're going on in your head. They have no external reality. And no one can share your hallucination. So when you have this dream that you're falling and you wake up, you don't look over at your spouse and say, whew. I'm glad that didn't happen. And she says, yeah, I know. That was scary. Or when you had that false sensory perception that you got a text on your phone, but it really wasn't there, the person next to you doesn't say, hey, check out, see who just texted you. 
They didn't share that because it is going on in your head. It's like a dream. You can't share your dream with another person. So now it's kind of interesting based on that. How is it that these disciples said that they had, they had as groups seen the risen Jesus? He appeared to Peter, or to 12, to more than 500, to all the apostles in this early tradition. And then multiple studies over the past century have shown that only around 7% of people who are breathing the loss of a loved one experience a visual hallucination of that person. And yet, the earliest reports, both in 1 Corinthians 15 and all the Gospels, report that 100% of Jesus' disciples experienced an appearance of him. 7%, 100%, that's an unthinkable 100%. So you can say, well, they were lying, or it was just uh, the number got inflated over time. But what I'm, if, if we're saying, if we accept that all of them were believed that they had this experience 100%, then it wasn't a hallucination. Again, you can say they are lying, it was a legend or whatever, but it was not a hallucination. Because the percentage of people experiencing it were too high, it was in group settings, and then you got Paul, who had persecuted the church. He wasn't grieving Jesus' death, he was glad Jesus died, and uh, again, he thought it was God's will to destroy the movement Jesus had started. So Jesus would have been the last person in the universe Paul would have wanted to see or expected to see. This was not a hallucination. So let's look at another option, the twin, identical twin hypothesis. Now this was posited by a guy named Greg Cavan um, back in the 1990s. He's a philosophy professor out at California. He's in his doctoral dissertation and he said, hallucinations, now it couldn't have been a hallucination, so many problems with that hypothesis. But as an atheist, he said, Jesus could not have raised from the dead. So we are only left, they, we've got enough evidence, sufficient evidence to establish that Jesus' disciples truly believed he had raised from, been raised from the dead. So how do we account for this? And he said, the only other explanation can be Jesus had an identical twin. And that identical twin appeared to the disciples afterward and fooled them. Now, what about that? Do we have any, any identical twins in here right now? Anybody? All right, so I can just make something up. Nobody will know. Actually, I think we had one the other night at, at, at the University of Missouri, right? And last week I was in North Carolina. We had three, three different ones. It was awesome. I'm from three different families is what I'm saying. So, and I've, I've asked this question of identical twins probably close to three dozen now. They always have the same answer. I said, all right, identical. You guys look identical on everything? Yep. Can you fool your parents? yeah, just for a short period. Like, like, how do you fool your parents? Well, as long as we're sitting there and not talking, we can fool them. Yeah. So what about your, uh, now, there was one, I had to admit, there was one that said, yeah, we, I could fool them for a little bit, maybe for a minute or two. And I said, what about your sister? You know, they were identical twin sisters. I said, can you fool her husband? She said, yeah. I said, ooh. <laughs> But for how long? Oh, not long at all. You know, I just start talking or whatever, and, and, and he'll know it's me. Because the voices are a little different. Facial expressions are a little different. Uh, if you're just meeting them, we might not be able to tell. But people who know them can tell immediately, within a minute or two. Well, these disciples had walked with Jesus for and been with him, lived with him for one and a half to three years. So if it was an identical twin who just separated at birth, 
and then all of a sudden shows up at the scene later on. He hadn't been with them all that time. Shows up at the scene later on. They're still going to be able to tell there's a difference. And then you got to ask, why would such a person do such a thing? He just saw his identical twin brother tortured brutally and brutally executed by crucifixion by the Romans. And you're going to show up and say, I'm Jesus, I'm back. Wouldn't you be afraid that the Romans would say, all right, buddy, let's do this again. And we're going to make it even worse for you this time. Anyway, uh, that philosophy professor has since abandoned that view. I debated him a few years ago, and he made me promise beforehand that I wouldn't bring that up during the debate. I think he's kind of embarrassed by it now. So, I mean, nobody really accepts the identical twin hypothesis, um, but that would be another option, so we have to rule that out. So, now we're left with the possibility they claimed that he appeared to them, he did not appear to them, and they didn't even really think that he appeared to them. Now, that leaves us with two options. They either lied about it, or when they said Jesus rose from the dead, they were just using that as a metaphor to say, well, his his teachings still live on today in his church. So let's look at that. Let's start off with lied. All right, Jesus' disciples lied about it, let's say. Now, this is something I've looked at the literature since 1985, just about all, and there's a lot. There's between 80 and 90 Academic journal articles and books written every year on this topic of Jesus' resurrection. In fact, Dale Allison, uh, uh, one of the top New Testament scholars in the world, he teaches at Princeton. He wrote a book several years ago. He's a friend of mine, and he says, the, this topic we're talking about here today, this morning, is the prize puzzle of New Testament research. And I couldn't find a single scholar who thinks the disciples lied about it. Not since 1985. No atheist, no agnostic, no Jewish, no non-Christian scholar, historian, who would say Jesus' disciples lied. Why? Because we've got multiple independent reports. I could give you at least 11 reports. Not all of them are independent, but at least 11 reports from antiquity that said that these disciples of Jesus were willing to suffer continuously and willing to die for their proclamation that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Now, of course, that doesn't prove that Jesus was raised. We all know that Muslim terrorists are willing to die for jihad today. We know that Buddhists in the past, monks, were willing to douse themselves with gasoline and set themselves on fire in protest of the Vietnam War. We know that people in the, in the cause of, of atheistic communism were willing to give up their lives for their cause. So it doesn't, just because you suffer or die for your belief doesn't mean that belief is true. Christians dying today as martyrs doesn't, doesn't show that Christianity is true or what they believe is true. But what it does show is they sincerely believe it to be true. You wouldn't have a Muslim terrorist go into Al-Qaeda and and they say, well, we want you to strap a bomb on your back and go blow up all these people. And the person thinks, well, let's see, Muhammad's a false prophet. Quran's not from God. I kill all these innocent people. God might not like that. All right, sign me up. No, they're doing it because they believe Islam is true. If you are willing to suffer and willing to die for your beliefs, Uh, for your cause, it's because you believe it to be true. Liars make poor martyrs. So this shows not that Christianity was true, not that Jesus' disciples actually experienced appearances of Jesus resurrected, but it shows that they truly believed 
that he had been raised from the dead and had appeared to them. They were not only proclaiming it, they actually believed it. Again, I couldn't find a single scholar today who, from 1985 through today who thinks that the disciples lied. So let's look at metaphor. Well, metaphor, it's just the, when, when they said it's uh, Jesus rose from the dead, it was a metaphor to say his teachings live on in the church today, but they really didn't mean it in an actual physical bodily sense or in any real sense that Jesus is actually alive today. Well, this one's easily refuted. Real easy. When you go to 1 Corinthians 15, what happens here is the Corinthian church has sent Paul a letter and he said, Paul, there are some people here in Corinth that are mocking us for thinking that we're going to experience a resurrection someday. We're going to live forever and have eternal life because they're saying this life is all there is. When you die, that's it, period. So, and they're saying there's no resurrection of the dead. So how, what, what can we say about that? How, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body are they going to have? And so Paul answers this. And he basically says in 1 Corinthians 15, he gives an argument that says, look, when we talk about us being raised, this is what's known as the general resurrection. This is just something that's been believed within Judaism for centuries, millennia. It's the last day, the judgment day, the dead will be raised. That's called the general resurrection. And Jesus being raised from the dead back in the year 30, April 30, he was the beginning, the first fruits of the general resurrection. And then he says in, in verse, chapter 15, verse 23, we will be raised when Jesus returns. So, Paul says, if we're not going to be raised, then that means Jesus was not raised. Because he started the general resurrection and the two, our resurrection and his, are inextricably linked. So if we're not going to be raised, there's no general resurrection. That means Jesus was not raised. And then he says, if, if Jesus was not raised, our faith is worthless. Because that means his death on the cross will not atone for our sins. Our, our, and people who have died as Christians, followers of Jesus, our, our family, our friends are forever lost. So he says, if Christ has not been raised, not only is our faith worthless, let's go out and eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Get all the sex you want. Get all the weed you want. Go live life for pleasure. Get as much pleasure as you can because this is all there is. Eat ice cream. Don't worry about being on a diet or anything. Just go ahead and enjoy life as much as possible. But Christ has been raised, he says, Therefore, we will be raised. Therefore, the Christian life is worth living. That argument makes no sense whatsoever if by resurrection they meant, oh, Jesus' teachings still live on. That doesn't give any hope of eternal life if he was not actually raised. All the reports report Jesus as an actual resurrection. And here's something else. Let's look at how the skeptics, the critics of Christianity in antiquity took it. Matthew, in chapter 28 of his gospel, says that the Jewish leadership were saying in his day that the disciples had stolen the body. Now, that is an answer to the claim that Jesus had been raised physically, leaving behind an empty tomb. So they interpreted the Christians as saying Jesus was raised physically. And then, in the middle of the second century, you have a guy named Justin, who was later martyred, so they call him Justin Martyr, 
And he says in his dialogue with Trypho, a Jew, we still have the writing today, he says, you yourself know that the Jewish leadership has ordained specific men to go around and say that the disciples stole the body. So they were still doing it around the year 150. In the, around that same time, there was a skeptic named Celsus, a Greek named Celsus, and he was saying Jesus faked his death, and through magic, he faked his death on the cross, was healed in the tomb, and came out and proclaimed himself risen from the dead. But again, that talks about why the tomb was empty and is saying why Jesus was still alive physically. It is interpreting the disciples' claims of resurrection as a historical event. And then around the year 200, you have a guy named Tertullian. And he says, well, there were people going around saying that the gardener at the tomb of Jesus, the garden in which all these different tombs were, he had a lettuce patch. And he was afraid that visitors to the tomb of Jesus would trample over his lettuce patch. And so he took and reburied the body of Jesus. And then when they came to the tomb, they saw it empty and said he was raised. Again, these are just All of them, all of the explanations that are given by the skeptics in Jesus' day were trying to account for an empty tomb, were trying to account for the Christian claim that Jesus' resurrection was an event that occurred in history. And then we notice what the Christians said in return. They didn't say, no, 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 you don't understand. We don't really mean it was an actual event. We just mean to say that his teachings still live on in the church today. No, they went and defended an actual resurrection of Jesus as, as a historical event. So metaphor does not work. All right, let's go on to the next option. We've ruled out all of these. Now let's look at he appeared. All right, now we've got a couple more options here. Next one, please. He appeared, and one more. So it's either because he did not die, and then he appeared to them, or he did die. And then he appeared to them alive again. Let's look at the possibility that he did not die. All right? So we got that one. He did not die. What about that? Could Jesus have survived crucifixion? Well, it's implausible. It's, anything's possible, okay. But historians must look for probability. And what we see, I remember in 2000. Uh, four, when Mel Gibson's movie came out, The Passion of the Christ, and I knew it was going to depict scourging and crucifixion in a very realistic and brutal manner, but I wanted to see how realistic it would be. So for six months before that movie came out, I engaged in research to see through all the ancient sources I could find that discussed the tortures that preceded, preceded crucifixion and the actual event, an act of crucifixion itself. It was the most disturbing research I've ever done, and there were several occasions I just had to close the books and walk away. It was just too disturbing. It was a very brutal process. The Gospels don't report a whole lot about the process, but when you read about it in antiquity, it, is just, it was horrific. It was the worst way to be executed in antiquity. There is only one report from antiquity of a person who survived crucifixion. And that comes from the Jewish historian Josephus. And he reports that when the um, uh, Romans came in and destroyed uh, the Jerusalem temple and, and took Jerusalem in the year 70, that around that time he says that um, some... Uh, oh the Romans captured several of his friends and they crucified him and he saw them. And so he went to his friend, Titus, who was the Roman commander at that time, 
and asked him the favor that he would spare their lives. And Titus, as a favor to Josephus, uh, ordered that all three be removed from their crosses and provided the best medical care Rome had to offer. In spite of this, two of the three still died. So even if Jesus had been removed prematurely from the cross and medically assisted, his chances of survival were very small. But here's the thing. There's no evidence at all, not a report, not a scrap of evidence that would suggest that Jesus was removed from his cross intentionally before his death and that he was provided any medical care whatsoever, much less Rome's best. So while there are possibilities that can be considered, historians, if they're going to be responsible, must look for probabilities and weigh the evidence, the data. And given all the evidence we have for Jesus' death by crucifixion, and we have a lot, without any evidence to the contrary, the historian at least must conclude that Jesus was crucified and that the process killed him. Well, now, folks, we only have one one other option. And that is that, all right, go one more. And one more. Jesus died and he rose from the dead. There are no other options. This is the only one that works that can sufficiently account for the data. And this is pretty interesting because as we go into the Easter season, we can see that when we read about the resurrection of Jesus, when we hear about it, this isn't just some fairy tale. And it's not just something that we have to accept by faith. There's actually evidence for it, good evidence for it. And what this means for us as believers is we can look at this and say, wow, this narrative over here that in the beginning God created, that, that um, God loves us so much that he gave his only son and that we can have eternal life becoming, by becoming his follower. That's pretty cool. It means that if some of you in here, I see that there's several senior citizens, one day, if it hasn't happened already, you're going to get that bad news. You got cancer, you got six months, four months, whatever. And it's going to really hit you at that point, and you're thinking, whoa, um, my life's over soon. And it's like, wow, if there's eternal life, the resurrection makes a huge difference. I'll tell you, it did with my parents when they were within a hair's breadth of death. They, my mom and dad went to their, their graves with peace and confidence because they knew that this was just a, a transition, a short transition from one life and into a different kind of life in heaven with peace and joy in the presence of God forever. That's pretty cool stuff. And we can know it's true because Jesus rose from the dead. And with Jesus' resurrection, we can know Christianity is true and we can rely on his promises. I hope this has been encouraging to you. And one more slide, please. That's my website, risenjesus.com. And if you go there, there we have videos, I, some debates I've done, some lectures I've done. There's some articles that you can read. Um, so there's some more resources. Um, Pastor Ed, which... Boy, I've sure enjoyed meeting you and Peggy this weekend. You guys are awesome. And I know you guys are blessed to have uh, Pastor Ed here and, and probably glad to have him back. And I can't believe this is first week back and he's having me speak. That's pretty cool. Shows he's not a pulpit hog. That's, that's pretty awesome. So um, 
Um, anyway, I have a, a book table back there with some books. Uh, the main book I have is The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. This is a book uh, that Gary Habermas and I wrote years ago. And it is a self-study course on the evidence for the resurrection. It's very easy to read and get through. And it also has a, a CD in it with a video game uh, for adults or children. And uh, But it only works on PCs. It doesn't work on Mac. I'm sorry, I'm a Mac user, but they could only make this one for PCs. And it's a, it's a simulated, simulated television game show with a three-dimensional animated game show host who's pretty hilarious, and he helps you master the material in the book. It cost over a quarter million dollars to put that game together. We had a company do it for free. A defense contractor, they built simulators for tanks for the, 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 uh, our military, and they put it together for free. It's pretty cool. Um, anyway, that book is back there. I only have a limited number of copies, and I have a, a few others back there if you're interested. So I'll be at the book table if you want to uh, get some of those resources afterward. So thank you for allowing me to come. And how do you guys close the service? You want me just to pray? Okay, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here today, and I, I pray your richest blessings upon them. Thank you for the truth of your resurrection. Thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you for providing us with evidence so that we're not just believing 100% by faith, that we can have a reasonable faith. We understand that there's no such thing as 100% certainty, but we thank you that you've given us enough data to show that belief in the resurrection and becoming a follower of Christ is reasonable. Thank you. May you protect us as we go out in, in the weather, and thank you so much for what you've given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.